The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Trucker shortages have been blamed for all manner of economic hardships in the UK. From toilet paper scarcities to long petrol station queues, our columnists discuss basket case Britain, as well as Asian casinos and investment banks. Tune in. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you this week from Milan. Britain looks like a bit of a basket case as a shortage of truck drivers has been blamed for a variety of economic ills. These include long queues at petrol stations and even empty shelves that should be filled with, among other things, toilet paper. A lot of this can be blamed on the UK's decision to leave the European Union and the country's tightening of immigration rules, but there are other factors at work too, as Ed Cropley and Peter Thal Larson in London explain. After that, I chat with Jen Hughes and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong about gambling and investment banking. For the avoidance of doubt, we are not calling investment banks casinos, rather discussing the latest from the renewal of gambling licenses in Macau, the Chinese territory, and the retirement of one of China's best-known raymakers. Give a listen. So Britain looks to be a bit of a basket case. Electricity is in short supply. Petrol stations, uh, there's huge queues. And even toilet paper seems to be uh, hard to find. Uh, Ed Cropley, you've written about some of these issues. What, try to pull it all together. What's, what's, what kind of basket case is Britain in right now and why? Well, I think as we saw in periods of the pandemic as well, the UK economy is structured on a very last minute, just in time, supply chain structure. And if anything goes wrong, whether that's with the labour market or with, um, say, lockdown restrictions as happened last year, then that that whole setup starts to to crumble and, and fall apart very, very quickly. We've obviously, for several weeks now, um, indeed months, have been seeing empty spaces on supermarket shelves because there aren't enough HGV drivers, lorry drivers to to keep things stacked up. And that shortage of drivers is now fed through into the the petrol station fuel market but now still there are reports coming in of things like toilet rolls running out on supermarket shelves so you're looking at a situation of maybe drivers being diverted from supermarkets to petrol stations and now you're having shortages again at supermarkets it's it's the whole system is is creaking because really there isn't a lot of slack um, to back things up when constraints and, and problems emerge and Peter, how how much of this is a, is a sort of the long tail of Brexit? I think it's definitely a contributor to it. I mean, I think the pandemic has probably made things a bit more severe in some areas. But there's definitely when you when you when you talk to people about the shortage of truck drivers, clearly a big factor is that I mean there there are shortages of truck drivers in many European countries, partly because people are doing more deliveries and so forth. Pandemic has made it harder for people to move around, but uh, it seems particularly pronounced in the UK. And that's partly because the UK used to have lots of European truck drivers who would come over and spend a bit of time driving around and then drive back. And they can no longer do that because the, uh, the UK has left the, the EU. And so not only do they face sort of pandemic related frictions in terms of coming in, but they're also sort of border frictions in terms of getting their goods in and out, which means that truck drivers are having to spend time sitting at the border, which they don't want to do, so fewer of them come. Um, 
And then there's also, there are now visa requirements. Basically, you know, you can't come and work in the UK unless you meet certain criteria in terms of the threshold, in terms of how much you get paid and whether you have high skills and so forth. And truck drivers are not among those people. So all of that has combined to create the shortage of truck drivers. But there's also, there's also just a, a lack of planning, really, on the government's part. People have been talking about this possibility since the UK voted to leave the EU five years ago. And yet the government hasn't really done anything about it in terms of trying to adapt that market. And so that's one of the reasons we're seeing these problems. Are we going to see an uptick in inflation as a result of this? I mean, you, you have you have a reduced supply of things like I, I even hear that the, the Cropley family has 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 it on good authority that in certain villages in the UK, toilet paper is indeed uh, in short supply. But also, are, are you all are you going to see I don't know, wages going up? I mean, they're now having to pay more for the truck truck to drive a lorry. Are they going to have to pay more for these things? Is that going to feed into inflation? What's your sense Ed, of the sort of the, the impact this could have on the economy? Well, that certainly seems to be the case. And, you know, the Bank of England, even before this latest iteration of the the truck driver shortage came along, the Bank of England was worried about the inflation trajectory. It's likely to hit 4% in the, the latter stages of this year, which is double um, where that the bank likes to, the double the rate that the, the bank is targeting. The worrying thing is when it feeds through into wages, that then becomes a sort of a permanent, a permanent fixture inside the economy. And indeed, we are seeing that pressure um, on wages in, in the transport sector. The, 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 the hauliers that I've spoken to recently are saying that, you know, your, your basic truck driver a year ago might have been looking at a pay of about 28, 30,000 pounds. Now, some of the packages they're being offered are up to 45,000 pounds. That's a 60% um, wage increase, you know, an, an astronomic pay hike in a very short period of time. And there's a knock on effect on, you know, the, the price of goods on supermarket shelves. There's a knock on effect of the cost of labour and other sectors of the economy. So there's no question that this is going to fuel a broader, broader spike in inflation across the entire economy. You also have this this energy shortage or power shortage that's related to a couple of things. Maybe you could pull that. Where does that fit into this, Peter? Yeah, I mean, the, the power shortage is, is I mean, I don't think we can blame that on Brexit. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a um, uh, you know, there's been an increase in gas prices um, across Europe, around the world, actually, um, uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, Russian supply, economies getting back going again after the pandemic, you know, sometimes a shortage of storage and stuff. But where that's been felt in the particularly pronounced in the UK, is that you have this sort of kind of free market deregulated uh, market for uh, energy supply, which means that there are lots of different providers of gas and electricity who go around competing to sign up different households. And you have a lot of kind of aggressive new entrants who've come and signed up lots of customers, but then not hedged their exposure to, to the wholesale market sufficiently. And so, uh, and then at the same time, the UK government also kind of came along and said, we're going to put a cap on the maximum that any customer can be charged for gas and electricity in a given year. And so when the when the wholesale prices spiked, you basically had a load of small suppliers who, who were suddenly squeezed between a very high wholesale price and capped retail prices that they so they couldn't recoup their costs. And the expectation is now that most of those small suppliers are going to go out of business. And that then creates a sort of a, a knock-on effect in terms of 
in terms of their customers. What normally happens in these situations, because it's not unusual for small suppliers to go bust, uh, what normally happens is that they go bust, uh, uh, their customers are taken over by another supplier, um, and that supplier then basically kind of covers the cost of, 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 of taking over these customers and recoups the cost through a levy on the industry as a whole. The problem at the moment, though, seems to be that there are so many small suppliers that are going to go bust that people think the system won't be able to cope. And so the, the, the costs of, of transferring all these customers to the bigger suppliers will be too great and therefore the, the levy will be too great. And so the, the government's going to have to step in at some point. That seems to be the expectation. I mean, it's not like people are going without gas or electricity. I mean, supply continues. Mm-hmm. You know, you just get customers get transferred from one supplier to another. It is true that people will probably face higher prices at some point, but that's a reflection of the higher wholesale prices. But there is still this question about does the government need to step in and kind of support this market somehow? And that is kind of where the tension is at the moment. But you did see Al Gore come to the rescue to some degree now. We did see Al Gore come to the rescue. Yeah. So Al Gore is uh, uh, he's a co-founder with a man called David Blood of a green asset manager called Generation Investment Management. And they announced this week that they were putting, I think it was like six hundred million dollars into a uh, one of the, the sort of upstart suppliers, here, more successful upstart suppliers here called Octopus, which has a sort of um, a focus on supplying green energy. And what's interesting about that is Octopus had just taken over customers of one of these suppliers that had failed. And so it seems that whole deal seems to have happened without any government involvement at this stage, which is kind of interesting because it suggests that maybe there is the the market is working and, and actually there is capital available for these bigger suppliers. But we have to basically wait and see whether this solution can be applied to all of the other suppliers that are going to fall over. Uh, in the coming months, as long as gas prices stay high. All right. Well, fascinating window into what's going on in the UK. Thank you, guys. And I hope you get your power, your petrol and your loo paper before it's too late. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you very much. From flying cars, deep sea robotics, artificial intelligence, gaming to virtual reality and much more. Join us as we showcase the next amazing inventions in tech. Search The Tech Podcast from Huawei. Time to geek out and get excited about all that's still to come. Katrina, talk to me a bit about casinos in Macau. Not that you've been going or anything. I know you've been busy with the kids and that kind of thing, but you have been covering uh, the stocks as they've sort of seesawed about uh, amid all of this speculation about how the Chinese government will will allow them to rebid for their casino licenses. What's actually going on? So the Macau casino operators' licenses are running out, and the government has said that they're going to have to rebid for those licenses. It, it's not a certainty that they're going to be able to hold on to them. And this is an opportunity not just to you know reconsider who's going to have a license, but also to reconsider the terms that are going to come along with those licenses. Earlier in September, we heard the first kind of hints of what that might involve. And there was a sense that the government is going to uh, be scrutinizing these companies a lot more closely. They might even have representatives within the companies monitoring daily operations. And that really scared investors. The day after we first got these details, the stocks in Hong Kong lost about $8 billion of their value. That was about a third, I think, of, of their combined market cap. So uh, people were really frightened. 
How many operators are there? There's six licensed operators. Six. Three of them are, are local, and then we've got three that are uh, American, so MGM, SANS, and Wynn. Although, of course, SANS is actually quite Asian now because it's divested from Las Vegas. It, it's really betting heavily on what it can do in Asia. And what? so what is the, what is the prognosis here? That they're having to kind of resubmit. How do they warm up the regulators? What is it they want to hear that's different from the last time that they had? Well, I, I think in the last year or two, Macau has become painfully aware of just how dependent it is on this one, you know, very specific industry. And that industry is, you know, in turn, extremely dependent on one place, which is China. And we've seen what can happen in the last year when, when one or both of those sources of income get squeezed. And so if, if you want to kind of buddy up with the, the regulators, I think one thing they'll be looking for is any kind of sign of diversification. So any sign that you're, you're providing something other than casinos, some kind so, of like so, family so, entertainment, so another form of tourism. High rolls and things like that. So no, the junkets, the guys coming in that were basically, I don't know, some people thought it was a form of, of turning Chinese uh, currency into uh, hard cash buying watches, things like that. You know, there was that whole kind of slightly shady. I remember visiting Macau, writing a column about how they were trying to become more family oriented. They were having the Shrek breakfasts, you know, to entice families with children and water parks and theme parks. So make it quite Vegasy or family friendly. Is that sort of still what they're trying to do or trying to pitch themselves as? Yeah, that's still a part of it. And there is actually, you know, there's an upside to doing that in some ways because it, it diversifies the, the operator's businesses as well. And also since the last push in that direction, you, you remember the corruption crackdown in, in 2015, which, which scared a lot of VIPs away forever, they've become less dependent on the high rollers. So, you know, it, it, in a way, there's, there's some good stuff here for them. And, and the other thing that I think is sort of unexpectedly good about it is well, there's another crackdown um, going on in China now on the wealth gap. Xi Jinping's trying very hard to narrow that wealth gap. And so um, there's, there's lots of positives actually about moving further away from the high rollers and, and more into these these other um, services and products. So is the Hamlin family going for a long uh, weekend to uh, Macau with the kids? We are not going anywhere because Hong Kong, like China, like Macau, has got very strict restrictions still in place because of COVID. And every time there's another scare, it, it gets worse. Macau's just had um, two more uh, COVID cases in the last um, uh, few days. So there's been another crackdown there, which is another thing that, that is scaring investors. There's just kind of no end in sight right now to that pain. Yeah. So speaking of high rollers, Jen, I want to bring you in here. You uh, wrote a piece this week about sort of the end of an era of, uh, of, of investment banking in China. That is Wei Christensen, who's very well known, had been a very well known uh, head of investment banking and, and co-head of Asia for Morgan Stanley in Beijing. She's retiring. You, you sort of you wrote a piece about how this sort of reflects maybe some changes in the investment banking industry and market there. Yeah, I think it was a good point to to look back and reflect on on just how much changed. I mean, Wade's been involved in investment banking on and off for the last two decades. And if you talk to bankers who were there in that really early era, so late 90s, early noughties, when all these SOEs were queuing up to do big, fancy IPOs on the New York Stock Exchange and their wives were going shopping on Wall Street and all the rest of it, back in that era, I mean, 
those investment bankers were almost putting those companies together at the same time. You're sitting there um, in some probably underheated office in some SOE, doesn't even know half the business it's probably got. And you're saying, well, okay, so how do I put these accounts together? Which mm -hmm. bits have you got? They're trying to, they almost had to create the companies and help them form themselves into something with at least a veneer of you know, capitalism on top. You go through all of that, and at that point, Western savvy mainland born or mainland speaking properly mainland born bankers were a rarity and you had these few rainmakers um way christensen being one of them i guess at those days who moved around almost between the banks as soon as one bank succeeded in poaching one then the other banks would have to dip into the same pool and used to get a merry-go-round where about five of them would move back in a row that was sort of early naughty still i mean she became co-ceo back in 2011 and Morgan Stanley, but now you've got it 10 years on, she's stepping down when they've just got full control of their mainland joint venture. So you've gone from this era of sort of well-connected rainmakers, and please don't think, I don't think, you know, the highest of Wade Christensen, she's a very skilled banker, but you've gone from this era of connections as well as banking skills to an era of what looks like regular business. So the connections right. are slightly less important, perhaps. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was so always so key and for the investment banks to have. Well, in, in China, business in general does rely on on those kinds of ties. But of course, a lot of the American investment banks had issues around hiring people. Remember, young people they were bringing in and often they were they were hired in time. Well, the argument was that the, or that the charges were that they had hired them solely based on their ties and uh, there were princelings, children and things like that. Is that I mean, Wei was, of course, not that, I mean, to be clear, she was she was well connected, but I remember she she's highly accomplished. If I'm not mistaken, she was like the first Chinese national to go to Amherst College, you know, one of the best colleges in America, um, really did forge the path of them. But yeah, I suppose it is, you know, it doesn't matter that much, those connections today. Is that essentially I mean, I'm not going to sit here in Hong Kong and say that connections in the mainland don't matter. I think it really could be the end of my career saying that. Just, my, my, my views on that would have you What's the point of having a conversation with you, having a connection, right? But I see, what you, but you can't rely on that in the same way that one could. No, I think the businesses are bigger. I mean, the way that Morgan Stanley's playing it now is they're not putting a new China head in. Wei was also the China head. The point being they've got businesses from futures broking to fund management. You're going to have functional business heads who know how to do those businesses and talk to their colleagues around the region and then report up to Morgan Stanley's now sole CEO, Gokul Leroy, who's running all of Asia. He was co with Wei before this. So they don't need that. I mean, I still think you want somebody in China to open doors. You still need some of that. And it's getting harder to, it has been hard this summer to read the tea leaves. It's worth pointing out Morgan Stanley was one of the banks on the DD Global IPO where they got apparently blindsided by the regulator two days later. So yeah. someone's not reading stuff in China properly. Well, I mean, I suppose you, I guess the bigger point is you've gone from an era of people to institutions. So you have these, a lot of these, at least the American investment banks have mostly institutionalized their businesses in the mainland as well. And also it's a question of, you know, the bifurcation of the industry, isn't it? I mean, if you think about a lot of the business over the last what, 20 years ago was listings of U.S. of Chinese companies in the U.S., things like 
that doesn't look like a particularly fruitful business at the moment, does it? Not as much as it was. I mean, you can sort of characterize the last two decades as going from the wild, wild east to the very slightly still funky wild east. There's still some stuff that goes on, don't get me wrong, but you know, I've, I've heard tales of back in the day of bankers whose um, their clients' heavies used to threaten to throw them out of windows to try and reduce the, field, the fees on IPOs. That one I got on good authority. Yeah, that sort of thing happened. That's not the way business would be done these days. We're talking about, you know, your, your margins on your fund management business. It's not quite as dramatic and exciting, perhaps, as it was. I'd hope that it's more profitable and it becomes a steady business for everybody. I think that's where they're wanting it to go. Okay, well, thanks for that, Jen. And thanks, Katrina. Talk to you guys in a future episode of The Views Room. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. And to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your cool podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Arrivederci.